please be seated. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to look at your word this morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one of us through these words of Paul. Amen. Right, the first slide. Uh, right, this morning we're looking at the promises of God and the law of God as it's directed towards his people and the promise of the Messiah, Christ, and how followers of Jesus inherit these promises of God. The key verse is found in chapter 4, verse 7. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Now, uh, promises are very important, aren't they? And I wondered, as I was thinking and praying about this, what has been the most important promise in your life? And have they actually been kept? Promises are really important to us. They are something that someone makes to us, and you know that they will be kept. Well, I wonder, do you remember that first promise? Or that first promise that was broken? When they're broken, we tend to lose faith, don't we, in the person that makes the promise. One of the sad points in life is when children realise that they can't trust the person making the promise. Good parenting involves being consistent and keeping our promises wherever possible. Perhaps that old adage, don't promise what you can't deliver, comes to mind. It's certainly true if you enter the teaching profession. You never promise to punish a child if you know you can't actually do it, because they soon learn that you are powerless. Promises. Well, we're in a series in Galatians. Paul is the author and the evangelist, and he has been attacked and he's been criticised in his work amongst the people of God. And uh, he has written this letter to point out the danger that these young Christians were in concerning their faith. Their church in Galatia had been infiltrated by teachers who insisted that these Christians needed faith in Jesus, but they also had to obey the law of Moses and the traditions of the Jewish faith. If you were with us last week, Jonathan spoke to us from the first 18 verses of chapter 3, where Paul states that these demands undermined their faith in Jesus and they should have known this through their experience of the Holy Spirit and from the teachings of the Old Testament scriptures. Jonathan concluded that we can't get right with God through our own efforts of keeping the law and we can have help from the Holy Spirit. Now, as all good teachers do... Paul repeats himself and builds upon his message. And he's doing this from after these first 18 verses in the rest of this chapter and into chapter 4. So please turn, if you haven't got your Bibles already open, to page 1170, because these verses are quite dense and we need to actually unravel them and look at them 
uh, in some detail. So I've got two sections to this sermon this morning. Oops, we don't seem to have any action. No, it's not working. Can you uh, put the first one up, please? Right, two sections to this uh, sermon then. The promise of God and the law of God, and then secondly, the nature and character of the follower of God. So firstly, the promises of God and the law of God. Paul writes of the promises of God to Abraham uh, that we've read or we can read of in Genesis 15, verse 18, where God promised him a land to live in and an inheritance of descendants despite the fact that he was childless and he was getting on in years. Now in this promise, God demonstrates his power and his authority in this statement, which was fulfilled through the Israelites' history. And this puts the events of the opposition of Paul within the church of Galatia from the Judaizers into a historical context and into the historical purpose of God. And while it might be difficult for us to identify with these Jewish and Gentile Christians, this process of linking in Jesus as the ultimate fulfilment of God's promise to his people, and we too can see this as a part of our historical timeline. We in the 21st century are a part of God's kingdom which contains his people of those those ancient times because Jesus is the fulfilment. Jesus is the sacrifice for our sin. Now that's a staggering thought, isn't it? That's a staggering thought, that we here are part of that promise. And this brings us to the next issue, that of the law of God shown in the Ten Commandments. If you remember, God gave the law to Moses on Mount Carmel, and Moses' job was to teach the people of Israel its content and its ramifications and how his people were to live. The idea of the law was that it would direct people to the way of God and the way that they were to live. Now we need to remember that because it's really important. Because this is what pleased God and it created a harmonious society. The law was was God's way of identifying sin and brokenness. Because without the law, no one would have known what sin was. And the law displayed man's disobedience to God. If you doubt what I say, have a look at the Ten Commandments. They're written on the wall of our church over on the right. Just think how much better our society would be if we all kept them and we didn't break them. There'd be no stealing, no lying, no lust, no murder, etc. But of course, we know through the accounts of the Old Testament, this was impossible for God's people to keep these laws in their day. And we know that they had to have religious ceremonies where their wrongdoing could be paid for by the sacrifice of animals' blood. Recognising this, Paul then asked the question in verse 19, what was the purpose of the law? Well, Paul states that it was given to show wrongdoing, until the seed was to come. Now that seed was Jesus. That was the fulfilment of the promise made to Abraham. 
And we read of this again in Paul's writing in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin because of the wrongdoing of the people. So then, what was the purpose of the law? That's Paul's question to these Christians. Well, look what he writes in verse 23 to 25 of our passage this morning. Now, this is quite complicated, it's quite convoluted. So I found uh, perhaps an easier way of understanding this through the Application Study Bible, the New Living Translation, which I think it puts it clearly. It's this, and I put it up on the screen for you. He says this, Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. I think that's... uh, You know, quite a a modern way of putting that passage. The problem was that the law had made prisoners of all. In other words, the nature of mankind is to sin, it's to do not what God wants, but to go in his own way. And the law of God shows this all the time. The law is a bit like, if you like to think about it like this, like a bright light that displays all the imperfections of human activity. It's like a powerful torch where in the beam of that powerful torch a moth is trapped at night time. And that's a bit like the law of God. And in verse 25 we read that the purpose of this law is to direct us to Jesus. To have belief and acceptance that Jesus is the Son of God. Human, Godhead, who died for a wrongdoing. So Paul is then stating in these first three verses of our reading that the law entraps us, we can't live within its beam, but this points us towards God's promise to Abraham fulfilled in Jesus. Now if this is so, then these Judaizers, these critics, were demanding that these young Christians were having to subject themselves to this bondage as the addition of the law and Jewish traditions were on top of their belief and faith in Jesus as the Son of God, who died for their sins. Now this link between the law and the sacrifice of Jesus is really important, but it also causes us problems as we seek to share the message of salvation to our friends, many of whom won't recognise sin and separation from God, and the need for a sacrifice to take the punishment for our sin. And in our evangelism, we need, don't we, to think of ways of explaining and showing this in a way that people can understand. So there we have the promise of God through Abraham fulfilled in Jesus. That's our first promise this morning. But what about the people that have actually accepted that promise? What about the nature and character of followers of God. Well, this is the second point that we can take from our passage this morning. And I wondered, as I was thinking about this, how would we describe to our colleagues at work, to our friends, those people we meet down the pub, those people we play sport with, maybe a family member, what a follower's God is like? 
Well, according to Paul, in verse 28, they are a person who is a son of God. Now, of course, humanly speaking, we have mixed images of fathers and sons. We can see good role models, but we can also see bad role models. Well, here, Paul is writing about the good role model. And so he writes that the son of God isn't like a slave. Sorry, the son of the father isn't like a slave. And we need to understand the culture of who Paul is writing to to understand this imagery. We need to understand that children of families in the ancient world, if they had any standing at all or any wealth at all, would have been supervised by a slave. They would have been taken to their primary school by a slave. They would have been escorted there. They would have been kept safe by a slave. And though they had the rights and wealth of their fathers, they wouldn't actually get those until they reached the age set by their fathers to inherit. They were inheritors in waiting. And so Paul here uses this imagery to describe how these young Christians had the inheritance of the father's kingdom in waiting. It would come when Jesus would return again. It would come when they passed away. But another characteristic of these sons is that they have a common father, which gives them a common inheritance. Not one of them is more important than the others. Therefore, he states in verse 27, all have been united with Christ in baptism. All have put on Christ like new clothes. Now, this reference to clothes is a way of stating Christ's character, which is righteousness. United with Christ in baptism is a way of saying death for sin, saving us from sin. And Paul writes to this again in Romans 6, verses 1 to 4, of how we have died with Christ to our sins and the imagery of baptism. And as a result of all this, Paul continues to make this very famous statement that because of this, we are all equal in Christ. There is no Jew or Gentile, there is no male or female, there is no free man or slave. We are all equal with God. Now, of course, uh, the issue of Jew and Gentile perhaps isn't so relevant to us today. We might not have that on the forefront of our minds. But it all points us to consider our relationships with other Christians of other races, other theology and traditions. I don't know how you see Christian history, but for me, one of the tragedies of Christian history and tradition is the way that different groups of believers have treated each other, from the extremes of death and persecution to judgmental attitudes, decrying people and ignoring them. Now, of course... There will be differences in interpretation of theology and word. There will be differences in belief. But here, Paul is stating that all who believe and have faith in the death of Jesus for their sins are united as one. So although we may have differences in the way we worship, what we think are the important aspects of our faith, if other groups of Christians have faith in the death of Jesus for their sins, then we are united with them and should live accordingly. 
Jesus died for all. Remember that. And the witness of faith to the world would be a lot stronger if the Christian church showed this. Yes, we can be different. We can have different traditions. But we need to recognise the strength of Paul's statements. Now, two examples that came to me as I was thinking of this that I've experienced. A couple of years ago, I was in Zambia and I was... uh, uh, on, a, on a Sunday morning, I was sitting in a, in a football stadium surrounded with Christians from Zambia. Very different traditions. But we were all able to worship God together, singing his praise. And more recently, last night, I was in uh, Bury St. Edmunds in a theatre where the London Gospel Community Choir was singing. And you've never heard anything like it. They sang their second from last song was Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound of Jesus. And they're different. They're black apart from one of them. And they rocked. Did they rock? But the the people there were united in worship of the living Jesus. And it was very clear from the songs that they sung their faith in the living Jesus. We can worship together the living God, because we are all equal together. What a promise that we have. Now, it's hard, isn't it, for us all? It asks us questions. What about our prejudice, our bias? It asks us to get back to the fundamentals of faith. Well, I believe that we will find a release to our spirits if we can recognise this situation, that we are all equal in faith. But note in verse 29... Paul states, if we belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. In other words, you are part of God's promise that joins you to the people of God in the Old Testament and location. Now this, of course, will uh, give us a special relationship with the Jewish people that has sometimes been used to favour them against the Arab world. And we need to take care here but we need to also recognise that important link. We read in verse 6 of chapter 4, another characteristic of the sons of God. They are given God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, into their lives by God and not by man. Look at this verse. Because you are sons of God, sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts. The Spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Now isn't that a great encouragement to us? Isn't that a great promise to us? Because if we've confessed our sin, if we've invited Jesus into our lives and accepted his death on the cross for our sin, then we can have the confidence that God has sent his spirit into our bodies. Even if we don't feel this. It is God who has done this We don't have to strive for it. There's nothing that we can do to earn it. We can just accept it as a gift from God. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we suddenly become perfect. No, we still have our own natures. But it does mean that God's spirit is there and can be nurtured. This is is what we can be encouraged by. We can encourage the spirit. We can listen to his promptings. We can pray for the gifts of the spirit that the Spirit can bring. 
If you want to know more about this, read Paul's writings in Corinthians chapter 12, where he shares with us these gifts. We can ask for the characteristics of the Spirit that Paul writes of in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Love, peace, joy. We can look at the way that people in the Bible have been led by the Spirit. We can pray each day that the Spirit will lead us, will help us to live for Jesus, will bring us into contact with people to share Jesus with. The important point here is that the Spirit of God is the power of God to make us more like Jesus. And this is the promise that Paul gives us here of the Spirit. Isn't it a wonderful promise that we can take hold of this morning? The Spirit that will lead us to become sons of God. What a wonderful promise to finish on. So my final question for you this morning is this. Are you sure that you are a son of God? Have you chosen Jesus and his death on the cross to take away your sin? Or are you trapped by the law? Alan recently said, uh, one of the issues for all of us is that our friends and colleagues don't even recognise sin and its effects. Perhaps in our witness, we will have to point out the nature of sin, the effect of the law, before we can point out the freedom that faith in Jesus brings. But remember, promises this morning. If you are a son of God, then rejoice this morning because God has sent his spirit upon you. What a wonderful promise. We are all equal in Jesus. We are all made one because of faith in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. What a wonderful promise to take away for Monday morning, whatever that might bring. Amen.